0: What is domain modeling? Hello, my name is Eric Normand and this is my podcast. Welcome. So, today I am starting to record these explorations uh, about domain modeling. Um, About two and a half years ago, I started podcasting about the ideas I was exploring for functional um, functional programming, which eventually turned into Grokking Simplicity. I didn't have a podcast before that. If you go back to the very very early episodes, you'll see that it's me rehashing these ideas, trying to define them, trying to figure out ways of explaining them. And uh, that eventually led to Grokking Simplicity, which is all about functional programming. And uh, one thing that happened in the development of Grokking Simplicity was that I had a plan for three parts. The table of contents had three parts. The first part was all about actions, calculations, and data. Very fundamental skill, and once you've incorporated that, you've internalized that, then you can move on to uh, uh a, the next level of thinking in functional programming, fun- functional thinking, if you will, uh, which is uh, higher order abstractions, higher order functions, um, functions as arguments, stuff like that. And that leads to stuff like map filter and reduce and building your own concurrency primitives and things like that. And then the third part was another leap, which is that once you've started doing stuff in calculations for enough time, uh, calculations and data, you start to if if you go through the door not everyone does this it's kind of a more advanced technique but you can start to think about your program much more abstractly you start to think more algebraically and i have a a whole episode on that if you want to search for algebraic thinking uh and so that was what the third part was going to be about this algebraic thinking basically thinking about your program uh, and and thinking about what the code what you can know about the code without running it, right that there's a lot that can be understood uh, abstractly and working with that. So that got cut. Uh, the reason it got cut was a good reason. Um, I was already mostly done with parts one and two, and um, part. I, I was thinking about cutting it into three volumes, uh, but talking with the publisher, they were skeptical that three volumes was the right way to do it. They proposed. The first two go together and the third one is separate. And The reason was that the first two form an arc from beginning, like no knowledge of functional programming, all the way to professional. If you you follow through and you learn all the skills in there, you have everything you need to be a professional functional programmer, meaning you get paid to write in Haskell or Clojure or whatever. Um, and this is empirically true, um, not specifically the, the book itself. But I these are the ideas that I took from people I knew, and I could I could I talked with them. I observed what skills they had, and I put all the most important ideas in the book. So if there was an idea that was in the and those happened to be in the first two parts, right? So um all that is to say that in theory, if you're already a programmer, you already know how to program, this will get you from no knowledge of functional programming to you can call yourself a professional functional programmer. The third part was something that was that i think is very important and i do think it's the next step but not everybody gets there or maybe they get there but they don't need to get there to start getting paid right so that 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 suggests a different audience and that so like in a you know maybe a senior person and it so it suggests a different book Cut it there. And that was also convenient. It was pragmatic because then I could be done sooner because I was almost done with part two and the book could be released. Uh, and then I wouldn't have to think about part three until all that was done. Okay, so um, that's what we did. And the book came out in. April, and now it is the, uh, the end of October. Yes, the end of October. And I have recently resurrected the idea. Uh, I went through my notes. I've been jotting stuff down, trying to organize the ideas and the definitions. I'm talking about it in my newsletter now. So I'm talking about it here and in the newsletter. And um, I'm not ready yet to say it's going to be a book, but I imagine it will. Uh, I'm not committing to it yet. Um, I'm waiting for the ideas to really crystallize into something I think is worthwhile, and I will know somehow, intuitively, um, that the idea is. Big enough, or maybe I'll never know. Right? It's possible that I won't know, but I won't. I won't make it a book until I know that uh, I will have the motivation to finish it. Right? That I know that this idea is big enough and um, well defined enough to turn it into a book, because it's a lot of work, but. I'm perfectly willing to make a podcast episode uh talking about the ideas, and I'll probably do more than one um so in this first one, I would like to simply define domain modeling um, again, this is one of those things that um that might help me <laughs> more than it helps the reader, uh, but um, a, I think a good definition can kind of help you with the scope and uh, help you pin down the idea more precisely. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Now I've searched like what is domain modeling, and you get a lot of articles. There's a lot of articles about domain modeling, but none of them actually define it. So you um you kind of get an idea of a, like maybe a process or uh what one might kind of look like uh and I want to be more precise. So to me uh my definition right now it's it's, it's evolving, right? Like even last week I changed it completely. Um but a domain model has three things. It has uh, it encodes information. it encodes operations on that information. So the information is relevant. So relevant information. It encodes sorry, let me start over three things. One, it encodes relevant information. Two, it encodes operations, domain operations on that uh, relevant information. And three, it defines invariants—the stuff that has to be true, uh, regardless of what operations you do, or um, you know where your data comes from, and stuff like that. So if you have those three things, you have a domain model. Uh, and of course, that doesn't tell you much. Uh, it just tells you whether you have one or not. It doesn't tell you uh, whether it's a good one. Or how to make one, uh, and how to make a good one. Uh, so that is what the book is going to be about. Um, to me, the real benefits of domain modeling uh, are all the benefits that are traditionally associated with software design, as 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 it's called. Um, but I find software design is often puts the cart before the horse. Okay, well, I wasn't planning on going here, but I will. Um, I think uh, this is an important uh, this is an important topic. The software design, uh, when it is defined at all and its goals are defined, will say something like the. The point of software design is to decrease the cost of maintaining or writing software, right? Uh, And so, uh, it's a very sort of cost-centric, business-centric goal, and and that's great. It's it's it makes it good for convincing business that we do need to invest in software design because then future changes to the software will be easier. Right, um, and that's cool. But because the focus is on the cost, the cost is kind of a lagging indicator. Like you don't really know how much it's going to cost until you do it, and then you can say, "Well, it took me ten hours." Um, you can you can estimate, and you can there are kind of rules of thumb for uh, that are. Not proven, but uh, pretty good indicators of uh, you know if you if you move this leading metric in one direction, it makes the cost go down. so for instance, um, it's pretty clear that good names of functions uh, help you understand what you're reading, the code, like what it does, and uh, so that helps you figure out where a bug is, for instance, or if you need to change something, a, it can make it clearer what needs to change. Um, so, Software design seems to um, have discovered a bunch of these leading indicators that help this lagging indicator of, of cost of maintenance, so the leading indicators that people will, will uh, we'll cite are things like good names, um, uh, the length of methods, the code organization, uh, the, the classes and whether they are coupled and coherent, right There's all these l- leading indicators that can clearly that clearly help move the cost down, which is a lagging indicator um, and that's good. I mean, I think that that's a, uh, you know, it's it's fine. Uh, it's fine for what it is, um, but I find that the, the the problem, the the thing that's overlooked, let's say, is that uh this is all focused on the code, size of your method, the name of your function, um, what file a function is in you know how your code is organized on the disk it's all about your code and that forgets that your code has to model in some way the real world that your code you know a a person class is Capturing some information about a person, and that that actually has to correspond to like the stuff that a person can know about themselves, right? Uh, that kind of thing is taken for granted. It is simply taken as well. This is the class. Now let's move stuff around. Move it to this class. Make a new method that calls this other thing. Like it's totally forgetting that there is a world out there and that your software has to model it i mean some small part of it some small part of the world what we're calling the domain and then there's relevant information for that domain and if there's one one thing one insight that um that i want to Base the book around it's that, that we can't lose sight of the importance of keeping a tight fit between the domain, the actual real world thing we're modeling, and what our code represents. What it what it, how it, you know, if, in quotes, how it understands that domain. If there's not a tight fit, that is the the biggest contributor to bugs, to um, poor understanding, to slowness of developing features, slowness of changing a feature if some if the requirements change. Again, all that stuff, that slowness, that cost. That is all a lagging indicator. And I want to find leading indicators that are not about the code, but about the relationship between the world and the code. Okay, not just the code itself and is it pretty, but what. Is the relationship between the real world and your code, and those boom, boom, boom dominoes lead to the lead the lagging indicator of cost, and I think that the the that fit between the domain and the model, the model as expressed in your code, is. overwhelms you know code quality the cleanliness of your code that if you have a like a hugely nested if statement it's probably because your model is not very good not because you're messy and you haven't cleaned your room it, you know it's just your model isn't good And so I want to uh, I want to to make a book about that. I mean, I'm not saying I will, but like that's what that's what that's the idea that is central to uh, to the book, to the top as you know the way I want to approach this topic. So the book we'll talk about. Uh, how to explore a domain, um, figuring out all the relevant information, the uh, domain operations that you'll need, how, how those relate to the relevant information and constrain the design of it, and then the invariance and how those constrain the design. And how to encode those? Because I think part of the definition that I missed is that these are typically these three things are typically encoded in a programming language, or you know maybe more than one programming language, because you have you know systems that have you know they'll have SQL and and a backend language like Scala and um, maybe another. Query language they have to work with, uh, and then maybe their tests are written in something else. Like you know, the way we break up systems today is uh, is usually multi-language, but it's all of it's written down in programming languages, or it's not, and it's like in our head, or it's in the spec. So um, we need to encode it somehow in English, in our spec, or in a table or in our code, etc. So I think that's, that's good. That's what the book is going to be about. Domain modeling, how, what it is, the process, how to make it good, how to make it um, lead to this decreased cost and maintenance because I think that that is a good metric. Um, but if you don't have a good domain model, you're gonna reduce the reduce the ability to be uh, to to be flexible and change your requirements and things like that. Um, another thing that I also think I believe a good domain model can be a competitive advantage. So it's not just like oh we're reducing the cost of of carrying software and modifying the software. But it could actually like open up new markets and um, just have fewer bugs and you know it's do, do magic for the user. <laughs> and I want to explore that too. So well, see you in the next episode. My name is Eric Normand and I've been exploring domain modeling today. And uh, please subscribe. As always, rock on.